2: There appears to be a bit of a Venn diagram if you look at the effects of the 2020 lockdown next to overdose deaths from opioid addiction. As these drugs have become cheaper and easier to obtain, and people became more isolated, the National Library of Medicine indicates a startling 32% increase in people dying from opioid overdoses between 2019 and 2020.
0: Almost every one of us knows someone who knows someone who knows someone who's battled heroin, lost someone to heroin, or some kind of opioid
2: abuse. But on the positive side, here in Illinois, lethal overdoses are dropping, and many are pointing to the widespread distribution of Narcan, a nasal spray that can reverse the effects of an opioid overdose, as a major reason. But even if Narcan has the potential to save lives, its ease of access is not without its critics.
1: People that think that this is enabling drug use, um, it's... it's purely enabling life. I'm Jim Hankey,
2: and today we're looking deeper into opioid addiction in Chicago's suburbs, how and why it's happening, as well as what one treatment facility is doing to empower their community and prevent any additional loss of life. Let's get looped in, Chicago. We'll get into the science of how Narcan exactly works later in this episode, but it's worth noting that education and distribution of it to the greater community of Chicago is rather unprecedented. For instance, thanks to a collaboration with the Chicago Department of Public Health, all 81 Chicago library locations carry and give away Narcan in an effort to prevent fatal opioid overdoses. In 2016, WBBM reporter Lisa Fielding produced a multi-part series titled Generation Heroin, getting stories from subjects outside of the city, in places like Naperville, Crystal Lake and Wakanda, showcasing that addiction and overdoses are far from just a city problem. So I wanted to speak with Lisa about that series, which we just made available again in partnership with this episode. Now, because those stories were recorded seven years ago, some statistical information may have changed, but check the show notes for a link to a full playlist of those pieces. So in speaking with Lisa this week, I started by asking if there was a through line between her subjects on why they began using in the first place.
0: When you meet addicts, and if you're not an addict, you don't really understand. That first hit of heroin is you you can never return because you can never get that high again. And so you keep trying to get the better high. Now, Chris Reed said he was doing cocaine, similar kind of path as a teenager, partying. And he tried to get down from the cocaine high by using heroin, like uppers to downers. The downers, to get the uppers, and the uppers, the downers. Now, there's a whole other world, which is painkillers. Caroline's son had hockey injuries, and he was prescribed, let's say, Oxy or Vicodin, something back when it was more accessible and doctors were readily giving out these prescriptions. And we've seen new documentaries about how readily these opioids were. Now you can't go to the hospital and get a Xanax because it's considered a controlled substance. But her son had sports injuries. And honestly, that's how it starts with a lot of younger athletes. They'll have a horrible injury, be given something and it's not helping. So they can't get the opioids anymore, the pills, they can't get the prescriptions, and they may turn to heroin. You know, a dime bag of heroin is very cheap, and it's very accessible um, in some suburban high schools, and that's pretty shocking as well. But the injuries seem to be the most common with someone who supposedly has it all, white-collar family, good school, You know, driving a good car at 16, 17, 18, you have a good job maybe in your 20s, but if you have an injury and it gets to the point where the pills aren't working, sometimes you turn to street drugs. And that's where you wouldn't believe, you know, beyond the walls of a perfect looking household. That's where it starts in the medicine cabinet. Caroline's son, she said, used to steal anything he could find from the medicine cabinet.
2: Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I can't imagine the the loss that a parent feels uh, hmm. due to something like this, Tim's story specifically, where, you know, yes. his son then gets addicted and and what yes. have you. Um, however, I do want to say that like a couple of these stories, you're speaking with parents who have lost or were losing their children due to this stuff. And they made a point to it, this brave act of educating other people, of doing what they can in their community to make sure that other parents, don't feel like this. It's a statistic where if we save one parent from feeling like this, if we save one life, this is all worth it. And I just, I I really was encouraged by the go-gettedness, if you will, of people who were in terrible situations and lost somebody and still had the wherewithal to talk about this on a daily basis with other people to educate them. It's pretty incredible.
0: Also, another mission is to educate parents about the signs. To recognize before it's too late. And things that both Caroline and Yvonne looked back and said, Oh my gosh, there was a million spoons in his bedroom. All the spoons were mi- isn't that weird. Like mm-hmm. I remember her saying, I look back and I was wondering why there was all the spoons were missing from my drawer or money was missing from my purse. They became more isolated. You, you that's what uh, she looked back with regret because she did lose her son. And you're gonna always blame yourself. How did I not know? So she's also using her tragedy to help other parents that way. Now, it took her a while, obviously, after grieving to decide to give back that way, but it's almost their therapy to help others' parents as well. And I think it's also been said that I think the state's attorney mentioned that this kind of stuff can't be, you can't wait till high school to tell kids about this and the warnings. You really have to start in junior high about the dangers of certain drugs. And so that's another thing that has become a mission for many of these people who have experienced tragedy is education, accessibility, and really what we do to move forward to solve this problem, if it's solvable at all.
2: You know, I remember growing up with the, you know, the D.A.R.E. program coming into schools, you know, and saying, you know, stay off drugs, you know, no means no, all all that sort of thing. However, with with Narcan and making it so readily accessible, and there's a lot that people are still learning about Narcan. I think your average person, you know, hopefully later in this episode, we're going to educate some people. But the goal is not for users to keep using. This is a life-saving thing that people need to have on them in order to reverse immediately the effects of an overdose. So I just wonder why you think this approach of trying to arm the communities with Narcan for loved ones and for the the users themselves, why that approach might be working more so than any other. You know, anti-drug programs or what have you. I mean, I think it's really putting the power in in the hands literally of people.
0: Yes, we did a story about how there was a whole booth at Lollapalooza for Narcan. And there was a line of people wanting free Narcan just in case. Okay. So why does it work over other things? Well, um, we haven't gone to the point where they're going to decriminalize drugs. That's not going to happen. And also we haven't been as progressive to, in some people's opinions about setting up drug users stations, like in Oregon, I believe in um, Amsterdam, a few other States have adopted ways to not encourage drug users, but make it safe. Make it well, if they're going to do it, we're going to give them a safe haven with safe needles and things like that. You know, the answer is not there yet, but you're right. The next best thing is if we can save lives ourselves, if it's going to happen in front of us, this is a way we can help. And hopefully, at least one of those people will stop doing drugs as a result of that near miss of almost dying.
2: Yeah. And speaking with Ariel, our other podcast producer, uh, she had alluded to a venue or two that were providing fentanyl test strips where you know we realize the security is going to do their best to make sure that drugs don't come into the venue. As we know, things can happen. And if somebody can test what they're taking in order to make sure that like this little bit, and that's a whole other story of fentanyl, just how little you actually need for it to be this cataclysmic event for them to be able to test that and go like, whoa, I didn't know what I was going to be putting in my body right now. I'm done with that. That's an incredible thing. So again, it's another example of let's save lives, let's educate the the genies out of the bottle, so to speak, on a lot. Lot of this stuff. To wrap up, what's been your own takeaway since covering that wow. issue? Again, we talked about it several years ago now. Yes. Uh, numbers have changed, you know, approaches have changed. Um But, you know, what's your takeaway in covering that issue and, and speaking with those who wanted to voice their story?
0: Well, these people are heroes. They really are. If you're lucky enough not to have such a tra- tragic loss in your life, you don't know how profoundly it not only affects your life, But to make the decision to use it to change others' lives is really remarkable. I mean, Tim Ryan in particular, he actually had a very short-lived reality show called Dope Man. And they had a camera go with him as he would go into into homes and interventions and try to get them into halfway houses and things like that. It was on oh, A E wow. and you know, and he's still out there doing TED Talks and things like that about his remarkable story, losing his own son, being in prison twice. And also he he marks his um, sober anniversary all the time on social media. I mean, I'm the messenger, I'm the reporter, but the people that I meet are really the heroes that are really making a difference, literally life and death uh, situations. And but to, but to be able to take a loss and tragedy and turn it around and really it becomes your new your new chapter in your life. They can make their lost loved ones proud and really make a difference after such tragic, remarkable things that has happened.
2: When we come back, we'll discuss the first 24-7 free Narcan vending machine in Kane County, and the mission of those who put it there. Stay tuned.
1: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders
2: while supplies last.
1: Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
2: Nathan Lanthrum is a certified alcohol and drug abuse counselor and the clinical director of Lighthouse Recovery in St. Charles. He has 20 years of experience in this line of work, having started with the Illinois Department of Corrections as a probation officer. Recently, an eight-part docuseries featuring some of Nathan's work dropped on Amazon, It's called A Prisoner's Path, and it examines the state of the American criminal justice system through the walls of Kane County Jail's Recovery Pod, offering inmates vocational training, substance abuse treatment, mentoring programs, and more. Recently, Nathan and Lighthouse Recovery made news by opening a vending machine outside of their facility, the first of its kind in Kane County, that distributes free Narcan, the life-saving nasal spray that can reverse the effects of an opioid overdose. Nate will tell us how it all works in a little bit, but we began our conversation with how the scope of the trauma stemming from addiction never stops at just the user.
1: We also do mental health and addiction treatment programming in the King County Jail. And one of the things we talked to a lot of the guys in there about is that their families, they, they do the time with them. And so if they're in there thinking for a second that their kids aren't impacted with them being gone or their families aren't struggling because of that. And same thing with substance use disorder. you know, We, we like to isolate this and say it's just a person, but it's, it's not. This is, this is destroying families out here. This is hurting children. And then generational trauma comes into play. And then the reason that I'll meet their kids in 15 years is because they are going down this path today. In what ways are
2: adolescents specifically being brought to Lighthouse, like how do they come there? Is it always a parent? Is it the state getting involved and saying they need to go to treatment? How are you
1: finding adolescents to help? It's a mix. Um, we've done a lot of uh, risk education work with the schools out here. So we've got two or three schools that I used to before the pandemic. I would go into the schools and I would run weekly groups. So I'd meet a lot of kids through that. Also, we just we have an adolescent program, so people know that they can call us for assessments. That was actually the first phone call that we ever got when we opened Lighthouse. Was a dad who was just looking for help for his kid and there's no other place to go. It's really thin out here, the amount of places that do drug specific work with young adults or kiddos.
2: Well, from 2018 to 2022, from the research I had done, it looks like there's been a gradual 20% increase in overdose deaths in Kane County. And I wonder, kind of jumping off of that answer, what your view is on why that might be.
1: The pandemic blew everything out of the water. The gradual increase has been gradual for a while. And then the last year of like the first real hard year of the pandemic, I think nationwide it was something like a 30% increase in overdose deaths. So King County is reflected in that. But in general, drugs become more accessible. And this started... I mean, way back in the 90s when pharmaceutical companies were pushing pain pills. And then as pain pills become less and less available, then you get street market heroin and then heroin gets cut with fentanyl, which is a cheaper um, way. So if I have one bag of heroin and I have a little bit of fentanyl, I can make 10 bags of heroin That's, that's as potent and something that people want to come back and get. So the drug trade is about economics and people were really, really, really hurt. During the pandemic, a lot of people couldn't get their medication, but a lot of people were suffering. I mean, drug use and substance use disorder is largely about what the pain of the individual is. It's not about the substance itself. So again, go back to economics. If there is a demand for it, there will always be a supply for it. And so I think as we see trends in society of more and more people hurting, then we're going to see more and more people trying to alleviate that hurt.
2: And speaking with Lisa, you know, we kind of learned that everybody's story is different. So obviously mm-hmm. we can't paint with a wide brush, but suburban kids who start using opioids, have you found in your work a commonality or two as to why or how they're getting into this in the first place?
1: It's weird. Like, and you're right, like it's a huge broad brush and everybody's got different reasons why they start doing something. Um, but out here it, what we're seeing is that substances are more widely available in different forms two kids that we're working with in particular that are coming into mind right now were getting pills and they were benzodiazepines, like a Xanax or something like that. Um, but they do what's called press the pills out here, which is they you know make something else in addition to that primary substance. And a lot of them were being pressed with fentanyl. And so we were drug testing kids that were thinking they were using um, benzodiazepines or different pills, and they were actually coming up positive for a lot of different substances. So the drug trade is just when I say unregulated, there's no regulation, but even... What you think you're getting from an illegal drug trade, you're not getting sometimes. So I think people are being exposed to more things, but also you have to take a look at the deeper issues. Why would somebody want to start using? What is the pain they're experiencing? Um, And I think at large, our society has been really, really struggling, especially with the pandemic, um, with some of the largest mental health concerns of this century.
2: But what is sort of the 101 on Narcan itself? People are hearing a lot about it in the news, obviously. Um, How and why has it become more readily available? And then what is its functionality?
1: So what Lighthouse did is we decided that we wanted to have 24-hour free unmonitored access to Narcan. Narcan is an opioid reversal drug. And if given in the right manner and with enough time in terms of responding to somebody overdosing, it can save someone's life. It's a nasal spray, basically. And and when you get a box of Narcan, it comes with two of these. And the the mechanics of it is that opioid molecules bind to certain receptor sites in the brain and naloxone, Narcan is a generic name for this, and naloxone will eject those opioid molecules off of the receptor site in the brain. And usually you have so much of that opioid packed in there that it starts to deaden respirations and heart rates. And that's how somebody dies. It's not a classic like movie overdose. You know, they just sort of they turn blue and stop breathing and fall out and no one's there to help them. And so what this does is it kicks it off the receptor site, their respirations come back, heart rate comes back, and they can just wake up. What we're finding out, however, out here is that let's say you came and you got one of these from us and this you think is enough to save you. The potency of the drugs out here right now, especially with the fentanyl analogs and other things that we're seeing, you need sometimes three, four, five of these to be put up somebody's nose before they're starting to come around we wanted to make it so you could get as much as you want whenever you want. So nobody was worried about like, oh, should I use it? Or can I? Or what do I do? And they always know they can come here. There's no video surveillance, no recording device in there at all. So nobody knows who you are. Because that was the other thing that some places that do have something like this are in buildings. Um, there's a lot of police departments. I know Elgin's trying to get one. The DePage County Health Department has one. But Drug overdoses don't occur, A, during business hours, and B, where somebody's comfortable to go to a police department. We just wanted to make it as widely available to everybody. You don't have to be a Lighthouse client. We don't have to know you. We never have to see you again.
2: I've checked out the Narcan machine at Lighthouse for myself in prep for this episode, and something that hit at my heart was a sign inside the door. Along with information about Lighthouse in the event that someone may be ready for their services, it reads, you may not know us, but there are people inside this building that care about you and want you to stay alive. More so than how Lighthouse can help inside their facility with therapy and counseling, Nathan says it's that message that he wants to communicate first and
1: foremost. Addiction is a shame-laden problem, and we treat this you know, like the, the scarlet letter of mental health and public health, really. And people that I work with that die of overdoses die in gas station bathrooms alone, or they die in trap houses. They're not out like having fun with their friends and party. This is such a shameful thing to go through and people don't want to ask for help. And so sometimes you have to you know, kind of be in the darkness and be in the shadows still to find the people that need the most help. You can't just wave a banner. You can't march. The people that need it are the ones that are in the alleys sometimes and the ones that are afraid to come out to light. But if you see something like this and you know that, okay, there's somebody that's willing to help. We have no judgment on you. And not only that, if you don't want to get help, if you don't want treatment, that's okay. Um, Because almost everybody that is in our program in recovery right now started out in that mindset, which is, I don't want anybody to know, and I don't need help. And if I did need help, I wouldn't know where to go. And all we need you to do is stay alive so that someday you realize that somebody out there can try to get you back on the right track.
2: Narcan is not a miracle drug, however. Steps still need to be taken once used, including, Nathan says, calling 911 immediately so that more direct medical attention can be given.
1: But not letting perfect be the enemy of good, we know that a lot of people aren't going to do that. They're not going to call 911 if they have heroin in their own pocket um, or if they're a known drug user to the police department. Because sometimes if you call 911 and say somebody's overdosing, the first responders are cops and not paramedics. There's a lot of amazing police officers out here that carry Narcan that are trying to do the exact same thing. But people are still worried. They're like, I want to go to jail. That is the movie scene where, like, you see the car race up to the hospital and somebody kicks their unconscious friend out and drives away. Another big thing is that does this enable drug use? Um, Because we're really utilizing something called harm reduction here. That's what Lighthouse is based on. Harm reduction just basically states how do we reduce the amount of harm caused to you, to your family, to society? And so people that think that this is enabling drug use, um, it's, it's purely enabling life. And it's enabling someone to maybe realize, couple it with that sign, or maybe realizing somebody cares about them, that they're worth seeking help and getting help.
2: Along with the thought from some that distributing Narcan for free simply enables drug use, another misconception is that somehow all of this free Narcan is going to end up in the wrong hands. And Nathan made sure to clarify with me the wrong hands in this
1: scenario simply do not exist. The thing is state's attorney's office, they did a press release, and and the guy that was talking to me said, "Like, well, what if people steal all of it? And I said, good. Take all of it. Take all of it, and you can't sell it again. There's no resale value. You can't abuse it. Take it and get it into everybody's hands. And the Kane County Health Department restocks us with Narcan whenever we need it. So come here and take as many as you want. But like the sign does say, understand there might be somebody an hour back that's also looking for this. So like, don't come here and totally clean us out. And especially with the drugs out here nowadays, everybody's supply is dirty. And I mean, everybody's supply is dirty. I don't have a single heroin user that we drug test here that isn't also testing positive for fentanyl. And what I'm seeing more and more out here is that people are Only testing positive for fentanyl. We have individuals. I just talked to a woman this morning in the jail that her thing was she would seek that out. She would seek the purity out. Um, So if it was just heroin or if it was heroin with, it wasn't enough.
2: There's a stat from 2022 that I found fascinating, which is that Illinois has the third largest rate of non fatal overdoses in the country. Just with that phrasing alone, I'm wondering what perspective you can put on that number for people at home.
1: First of all, I think it's amazing. Uh, you have to look at this the right way, though. So take gun violence, for example, right? Um, in the late 90s, Chicago, you know, you're racking up a 1000 homicides a year or something like that. And then take a look at shootings. Shootings aren't necessarily all that different, but homicides are down. And why is that? Is there more life-saving techniques? Are there trauma centers on the south side and the west side of Chicago now? Are people more trained in how to treat these in a um, urgent, acute triage fashion in the street? You know, it's it's the same thing. Like drug use might be up, but the more and more preventative measures that we take to get something like this into people's hands, or to make sure they can come back to treatment, or to treat them with compassion and love and care and not shunning them, are we actually? Well, maybe drug use is the same driving down the amount of people that are dying. And that's perfect because I can help you tomorrow if you don't die today. And then maybe that person becomes the father of the year and gets the job back and and lives a life they want to live, you know, but we have to keep you alive for you to realize any of that. Maybe if we're not impacting the use, that's not the point of this machine. I know for a fact that it's already saved lives. I know we're, we're probably looking at pro- somewhere between 10 and 15 boxes going out every week. And there's people in our facilities that are notifying us and thanking us for having this available because otherwise their loved one wouldn't be here.
2: This episode of Looped in Chicago was produced, hosted, and edited by me, Jim Hankey, with additional audio editing by Ariel Raveney. Be sure to subscribe to the show on the free Odyssey app or wherever you listen. And don't forget to follow our social media. That's at WBBM podcasts for visual content relating to our episodes. We'll keep you looped in again right here next week. Thanks for listening.